Father, we do want to acknowledge and recognize your great faithfulness to us. Most of all, your, your great faithfulness in communicating Christ and the gospel to us. Opening our eyes to the reality of our own sinfulness and all that is accomplished in your substitutionary work at the cross. You have been a faithful God, clearly delivering this important message. We recognize that it is so ignored throughout the world. We do pray for, for uh, Peter and Kim and their family, that you would bless them and encourage them. And I pray that you would begin just one family at a time. For, to, to, see, to help them see families coming to Christ and building a core group of believers and establishing a strong, gospel-centered, Christ-uplifting, Bible-centered ministry there in England, in that needy, needy land. We recognize, Lord, that we are very much a needy nation as well, that we are a broken people, we are a sinful people. We celebrate sin, and we call good bad and bad good. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would convict us as a nation, that you would start a revival in our churches and that we would see people coming to Christ and we would see people crying out in repentance before you, a holy God. Father, encourage our hearts and strengthen us as we open the word together, I pray now in Jesus' name, amen. And thank you. You may be seated. As you grab your Bible, there are no notes today. Um, we're going to just focus on our nation's birthday and have a challenge from God's Word concerning um, what I hope will be an encouraging message on how we can become a great nation. As you grab your Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 33, but uh, let me just um, share a little word picture with you as we begin. One of my favorite Sunday afternoon activities is, as it's quieting down in the evening, is to get my dog and to walk through the church property and reflect upon the day and just continue to pray for an ongoing impact of the Word of God from the pulpit of the morning. And that's a time when the Lord often whispers a little voices to me of all the things I said wrong for the day. And, and so then I have the rest of the week to correct that. And it's a time when I just thank the Lord for Fellowship Bible Church and think about the week ahead. Now, I've begun to notice in the last year or two that um, our woods in my yard which is littered with dozens of beautiful ash trees, that these trees have begun to change. Uh, you're probably aware of that. I have a few of these that are just huge trees and are very beautiful, 60 or 70 feet tall, and we have enjoyed them. And the ash uh, lumber is very useful product, and the trees are very beautiful. The canopy provide a haven for birds and by this spring at our home, maybe yours as well, and throughout the church woods, there are several dozen ash trees that barely have any green leaves left. You see, the, the emerald ash borer came from probably from China, they think, in crate lumber, and it spread beginning in Michigan throughout now at least 26 states. What's interesting about the emerald ash borer is that as it crawls on trees and nibbles the leaves of the tree, it does very little damage. But it lays its eggs, and these eggs, as they hatch into larvae, live underneath the bark of the tree where they destroy the membrane there between the bark and the tree, lumber itself, and the tree is unable to sustain itself with nutrients and moisture, which is what those designed membranes are for. 
Little by little, the tree begins to die. You'll also notice as you observe these beautiful trees that they change color and the bark is dying. And then the woodpeckers have figured out that there are larvae and emerald bores on the bark and in the bark. And they've begun their incredible task of boring holes, round and oval holes, all up and down the beautiful straight grain trunks of these trees. I've marked a number of them and they will be destroyed. They will provide heat for Janny Baby this winter. (laughs) And we will miss those beautiful trees in our yard. What once was so beautiful and majestic and so useful. I love lumber. My father taught me a good bit about trees and lumber and and ash lumber is really just a quality lumber to work with. And it'll, most of it will be unusable other than to create some BTUs to keep us warm. I thought of that as somewhat of a metaphor or a word picture for our great nation. It flourished. It was strong. It's been useful. It's been beautiful. And then the sin bore began to penetrate and lay its eggs in our nation. I'm not saying that we've ever been a perfect nation or without flaw. But I'm saying that it is not difficult to document that we're on the downgrade. I thought that this holiday weekend where we celebrate the 240th birthday of our great nation, a nation that was founded upon principles of God's word by men who feared God, who acknowledged a creator God, and who believed that he had outlined a a morality They believed it to the extent that they would chisel it into some of our most important buildings. That we have now come to a place where I believe it's only a matter of a short time that they will be sandblasting out of our buildings these engraved words from the Bible. It has become, of course, very politically incorrect incorrect to say that anybody could do anything wrong. And we have a nation that is in moral shambles, and as a result of our moral shambles, We are in chaos, both politically and in every way, even among the the communities. We see crime and destruction and disaster. I want to turn our attention as a foundation to Psalm chapter 33. And I want to remind us that the bottom line reality that to be a great nation, it takes more than economic power. It takes more than a strong military. That you cannot just stand up and announce that we're going to be great again. Like somehow you can wave your magic wand and make it happen. But that apart from a nation repenting of their sin and humbling themselves before a holy God and begging God to to create a new work, America will never be great again. Let's read Psalm 33 as it reminds us Uh, of some very important principles. Psalm 33, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I'm beginning with verse 12. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven and He sees all the children of man. And from where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. 
A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. I was just challenged by those verses and I thought that they laid a great conceptual foundation for where I want to go in the little book in the Old Testament of Jonah. Will you turn to Jonah with me? We're only going to look at one chapter there and what I want to do this morning as we consider this concept of becoming a great nation is I want to ask ourselves, what does it look like when a nation turns back to God? What does it look like when a nation turns to God? I want us to use as a case study the wicked city of Nineveh, and I want us to look specifically at Jonah chapter 3 in our Bibles. You see, you need to understand that it is difficult to overstate how wicked and base the city of Nineveh once was. They were an, incredible, an incredibly pagan group of people. They were a strong people. They are, their remains of the city of Nineveh are found right adjacent to the present-day city of Mosul in Iraq. Archaeologists have unearthed Nineveh. We're very confident that that was Nineveh. We'll comment just a little more about the dynamics of this city. But let's just remind ourselves of this little book of Jonah, only four chapters. You'll recall in chapter 1 that that's where we're introduced to Jonah. He's an interesting uh, prophet. He is a prophet, one who pronounces the words of God. Remember at this time that... Um, by and large, they had very little of the Word of God written down. They had some of it. Um, and, and so God used men to speak forth His truth, often to warn His own nation Israel. What's unique about Jonah is that he is the one prophet of the Old Testament that was by direct command of God instructed to go to a pagan group of Gentiles. It's interesting, isn't it, that last week we recall that our Lord Jesus left the, his Galilean um, ministry arena in, as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we're doing here on an ongoing basis. In chapter 15, there's a pivotal point in the Gospel of Matthew as our Lord left the Galilean uh, arena and he moved into Tyre and Sidon. We're going we're gonna to hear that in our message today as well. A Gentile region. God loves Gentiles and Jews. You know that. God loves all people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that, what's the next word? Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so what's interesting about Jonah is that he was instructed to go to Gentile people. All the other prophets were speaking out. Isaiah, Jeremiah, these kinds of prophets were speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn back to God. Most of the time their words were completely unheeded and in fact they were attacked. 
And so it is interesting that as Jonah receives his mandate and marching orders from God to go to Nineveh, you know the story, he heads down to the seaport, gets on a ship and goes exactly the opposite direction. So, so God has to, you know, kind of get him by the ear and twist it a little bit. He brings up a big storm. Uh, the pagan sailors are crying out to their gods. Jonah kind of comes up on deck, acknowledges to them that I'm the reason for all of your headache right now. They end up tossing him overboard. And God had prepared a great fish. And that fish swallowed Jonah. Chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Chapter 1 tells that part of the story of him getting on a ship, trying to run from the presence of God. A very bad idea. He ends up in the belly of a fish. And there, deep in the sea, in the belly of the fish, he is very much in the presence of God. You cannot run from the presence of God. God says, Jonah, I'll give you another chance. He lets him sit in that belly of that fish for three days and three nights. By the way, if you're skeptical about that story um, and you don't believe it, then you will have to look at uh, Jesus and say he's wrong too because Jesus believed that story in the New Testament. And in fact, the picture of Jonah in the belly of the whale is a picture of Christ in the tomb for three days and three nights. It's a type. It's a type. Well, in chapter 2, you can read Jonah's prayer and how he almost dies. He becomes almost lifeless there in the belly of the fish. He's almost dead. And then he finally repents and he says, Okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he says, I still want you to go to Nineveh. And he gets spit up on dry ground and off to Nineveh he goes. We're not going to make it to chapter 4 either. We're only going to do the 10 verses in, in uh, chapter 3. And it's a very simple concept that we're going to do today. But in chapter 4 is also very interesting. After Nineveh does repent and hears the word of the Lord and, and repents of their sinfulness, Jonah uh, puts on a fit of uh, just disgust with God. In fact, chapter 4, one thing we get from it is that we understand how despicable the Ninevites were based upon Jonah's response that God is going to save them and spare them. He is so upset that he would spare this wicked people that he says, I'd, I'd rather just die than watch them be blessed by you. I mean, that's unbelievable that you hate a people so much or you are so, really there's some racism involved, some prejudice, and then just literal disgust for all of the historical behavior of this people group, they do not deserve the love of God. And it's very easy for us to fall into that kind of trap, that we could identify people groups, kinds of people that we would say, they don't deserve the blessing of God. They deserve the hottest part of hell. Well, as a matter of fact, so do we. And it is only by His grace and His mercy that He spared us that. Well, what I'd like to do in chapter 3 of Jonah today is is use them as a case study of what it looks like when a wicked nation turns to God. What you need to do in your own head for application as we move along is, as, as you see the Ninevites respond, and as we point out how they respond, you need to be asking yourself, okay, in America today, do we do that? What would that look like today for us to respond in this manner or fashion? Let's read chapter 3 of Jonah in its entirety. It's only 10 verses and it's quite interesting. 
So Jonah is now out of the belly of the fish. He is now willing to go to Nineveh. And in fact, he arrives at Nineveh. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Let's just pause right there once again and let's just tell you a little bit about this. Three days journey in breadth. It was a city of several hundreds of thousands of people. It was sort of a city-state. Archaeologists tell us that there was an inner wall around this city that was 50 foot wide and 100 feet tall. It's an incredible wall. It's part of how they could defend themselves. They also tell us that there was a, a wall that was a lesser wall that was eight miles in circumference around the inner core of the city. The Great Wall was surrounded by a lesser wall. And so the way to picture it is like a thriving city-state with towns or, or suburbs all around it that if you circled that area, it would be an eight-mile-long wall. This whole idea of taking three days to walk around it would be the idea that Jonah walked uh, so far, then he would evidently stop and preach, and then he would walk so far and he would stop and preach. There they are, this powerful little country that was despised by the world, Because of their atrocities, their war crimes, their heinous acts of behavior, they would fillet people, they would pillage and rape and and cause ruin, and they were a bloodthirsty pagan group of people who had no regard for God, driven by their own pride and arrogance. And so this city, Nineveh, was an exceedingly great city. It is stated three times by God uh, in our text that uh, three times God calls it a a great city in chapter 1, verse 2, in chapter 3, verse 2, and then in chapter 4, the very last verse. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, verse 4, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and he published through, that he published through Nineveh. The proclamation was this, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let, them, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Interesting, isn't it? So what I'd like us to do is observe six things. Six ways that the city of Nineveh, the country of Nineveh, responded. What does it look like when a nation, a wicked pagan nation, a nation that has parades for despicable sinful acts, a a nation that, that thinks that it's ridiculous that the gender of one's birth on their birth certificate should mandate which bathroom they go in. A nation that oppresses its people who are trying to live righteously. 
What does it look like when a nation like that, a nation that abuses power and a nation that is filled with pride and a nation that just announces to itself that they can be whatever they want to be and be great again and yet continue to deny the existence of God, can slaughter unborn babies to the degree that in, 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 a, in a literary way, blood flows in our streets, that that kind of nation can just say they, they can be whatever they want to be. What does it look like when that nation humbles itself before Almighty God? Here's what happened when Nineveh did it. First of all, I want you to see that they recognized the man of God. I think it is so interesting that when this guy Jonah starts walking into this city, that they even paid attention to him. I mean, who's Jonah? He's just this, this Yahoo walking into the city and he's like, Hey, you guys need to know that in 40 days, God is going to condemn your city. I mean, what was it that they even paid attention to him? Some Bible students suggest that they had heard his testimony of being in the belly of the fish and that that was kind of spreading. Some suggest that the fact that he had been three days in the belly of the fish had literally the acid in the stomach of the fish had burned his skin and that he was disfigured or scabbed or that his hair was bleached and that he was some kind of bizarre sight walking into this city. And that somehow the way he looked and the story that was going on about him struck the people in such a way that the people had ears to hear and they recognized that he was a man of God. And the bottom line is, is that God just opened their blind eyes. There was a spiritual work that began to go on through the man of God. Okay, remember what we're asking ourselves now. Does our nation recognize people of God? Nineveh, as pagan as it was, immediately recognized a man of God. The second thing I want you to see is that they responded to the word of God. Notice what it says. So Jonah rose, verse 3, went into Nineveh. He begins to preach. They hear him. He began to go into the city, verse 4, and he went a day's journey, and then he called out. So evidently, he, he caused some kind of a stir. There was some kind of a whispering, some kind of an acknowledgement of his presence. And, and then he got to this certain strategic point and he began to cry out his message of condemnation. You need to know that you have 40 days. Now, 40 is kind of an interesting number in the Bible, isn't it? It is, it is usually a number that recognizes judgment or warning or penalty. 40 is usually not a number in the Bible that is associated with God's blessing. It is more affiliated with His judgment. For example, in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, how many days did it rain on the earth in the, in the global flood deluge? 40 days and 40 nights is indicative of judgment. How many years did the Israelites wander in the wilderness as God said, you got a whole generation's got to die off here and pay the price of your disobedience? 40 years, right? Wandering in the wilderness. And so you see this kind of thing. Uh, it's a time, it's also a number that in the Bible is associated with testing. How many days our Lord, for example, was in the wilderness and so forth. So that number is kind of an interesting number in Scripture. And that's the number that Jonah evidently received from the Lord to pronounce to them, you've got 40 days left. Whether it was literally 40 days to the day, it was certainly indicative of a, of a brief window of time, and then the judgment of God will be upon you. 
Notice what it says in verse 5. Jonah announces in verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh, look at the next two words. It's incredible. They believed God. Now, I challenge you to walk down to the Walmart parking lot after church today when you go buy your stuff to stick in the back of Keith's trailer before he leaves and just stand there and just pronounce some judgment on the world here and see how many people believe that you're speaking the word of God. Why don't you do this? Get your Bible and open it up and just proclaim truth from Scripture and see if the people in the Walmart parking lot believe God. You're liable to be mocked. You're liable to be told to leave the premises. You will not be acknowledged as a man of God and you will not be heard as speaking the Word of God. And these pagan Ninevites had done both of those things. The third thing I want you to see is that there was then... In response to believing the word of God, there was among the people a revival seeking the face of God. Now notice what happens. They, the people of Nineveh, verse 5a, believed God. They then called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now I think this, is a, this starts out as a grassroots movement. Now this... This sackcloth and ashes thing is something that's foreign to us. It's really probably a pretty good visual. Customary in in this Middle East region. And we see this throughout scripture. Probably the first person that we acknowledge doing it was Job, remember? In In their struggle with whatever was happening and angst. An urgency, an overwhelming reality of the problem at hand. And in a, in a symbolic way to acknowledge the greatness of God and to humble themselves to show on the outside what was going on on the in, inner workings of the heart. They would often even tear their clothes off. They would put on rough sackcloth. I picture feed sacks like on my grandpa's farm. When they were made out of burlap and you'd take their jackknife and cut a neck hole in it and drape it over like some kind of a poncho to barely cover themselves. And then go to the cooking fire and pick up ashes and rub it on their arms and their faces and throw it up in the air. Let it fall on them and just this this moaning, this grieving, this picture of utter despair. And so we have this this. Spiritual revival begins to take place. And what they're doing is they're seeking the face of God. Look what it says. They called out for a fast. Let's read verses 6, 7, and 8 then. The word then reaches the king of Nineveh. He arises, removes his robe. He issues a proclamation to enter all people into the fast. And verse 8 says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them do what? What are the next three words? call out mightily to God. They're seeking the ear and the face of God. We need a national prayer time of repentance is what it is. And the king mandates it. I think it's very interesting in this to picture the king taking off his robes, which represented everything about him and his powerful position, taking off his jewelry, taking off his crown, removing himself from his position of power, putting on sackcloth as the king, covering himself with ashes, and then putting out a mandate that we're all going to do this, leading the people in repentant prayer. 
Let's look at a contrast quickly. It's very interesting. It's in Acts chapter 12, and it speaks for itself. There is another king recorded for us who did not take off his robes. In fact, he put on his robes, indicative of his pride and his arrogance and making sure everyone knew that he was in power and in control. And it, and it speaks completely of a lack of humility. I mean, think about this king of Nineveh demonstrating his broken humility before God. Think about Herod in Acts chapter 12. Now Herod, verse 20, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That was where we just heard about last week, where our Lord went to minister, coming out of his Galilean ministry. Uh, a region of the Gentiles that Herod ruled over. And they came to him with one accord. They had persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. They needed Herod to give them food. So Herod realizes this is a great opportunity to show them who's in control. He has a great opportunity to show them how they need to be dependent on government and how they can't do for themselves and that he needs to do for them and that he is the man and that he will, he will restore greatness to their country and he will, he will put a chicken in every pot. And he puts on his robes. They're dependent on him for food. He calls an appointed day. He calls for Herod Day. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He didn't take them off. He put them on. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. He loved to hear his own voice speak. I'm sure he told them how great he was and how great they could become and that they were going to be a great people again and that he was so great he was going to feed them. And he believed his own words. And the people were shouting, This is the voice of a God and not of man. And he believed them. And immediately the death angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Kabam! And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. By the way, it is interesting to include verse 24 that in the middle of this political climate of nothing but anti-God arrogance, the word of God increased and multiplied. Can I tell you that we don't need a political system for the word of God to increase and multiply? God will do his work. Think about O'Herod. He's pronouncing his greatness in his robes. We're back in Jonah chapter 3. And about that time, the... The sin larva began to, began to hatch out in his gut. And evidently, very rapidly, these larvae, some kind of maggot bug or something, eats his gizzard and he dies. He didn't even know that he was sick. He didn't even know that the larva had been laid and was ruining that which was once strong. The king of Nineveh somehow became overwhelmed with the reality of his own need to bow before God. Let's quickly look at these other qualities. There was this revival in seeking the face of God. Notice in verses 8 and 9, as he calls out that we would seek mightily, call out mightily to God. Then he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Number four, they repented in the fear of God. 
In other words, if we don't repent, God is going to judge us. And they were worried about that. They became consumed with the reality that of their own lostness and their, their sinfulness and their arrogance that God was going to judge them. And they were afraid. They, they were overwhelmed with a fear of God. Does anybody in our world today fear God? And they spit in his face on a moment-by-moment basis. Not only did they repent in the fear of God, but they reacted then to the mercy of God. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. They wanted mercy from God. Remember, we just talked about this last week. Mercy is, is the reality of God withholding that which we do deserve. God, would you hold back your hand of judgment? So they... Repented in the fear of God of their sinfulness. Repent means to turn away and and start a new direction. And they reacted to the mercy of God. That God would turn away His fierce anger. I think that is an appropriate prayer for the church today. God, would you turn away your fierce anger on the United States of America. I'm going to tell you something. You cannot celebrate sin the way we do. You cannot mock God the way we do. You cannot kill unborn babies the way we do. You cannot call righteousness unrighteousness the way we do. And think that the wrath of God is not ready to fall. Finally, number six, they were released from the judgment of God. Look at verse 10. They were released from the judgment of God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Isn't that a great ending? That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. This guy walks in and they recognize him as the man of God. They hear the word of God. They begin to seek the face of God in prayer and repentance. They repent out of the fear of God. They beg for the mercy of God. And God withholds his judgment upon him. That is how a nation is restored. Right there. I want to tell you something. That is essentially the only way a nation is restored. And how ironic that we have one of the most despicable pagan little nations that was ever in existence on the globe who, holds, who is a model for us on how to be great again. I don't care who stands on the podium and announces that we're going to be great again. If they don't take off their robes and bow before a holy God, we are doomed. But can I tell you that if it happened in Nineveh, it can happen here. God's people should not despair. God's people should humble their hearts and they should pray. And it should begin here and it should move and trickle up. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see our president, even before he leaves office, to bow his head before a holy God, to renounce his own sinfulness, and to call out to his countrymen that he leads to repent of their sinfulness. Call for a changing of direction for this country. If it could happen in Nineveh, it could happen here. Let's stand and pray, please. And so, Father, we find ourselves in a nation that is eaten up with the sin bug. And the larvae have been laid and they are hatching. And it's ruining the great tree that this nation once was. Father, would you begin a movement among us that we would love righteousness and hate sin and we would listen to your word and we would recognize your people And that we would be willing to humble ourselves and, and as it were, in spiritual sackcloth and ash. And we would beg for mercy before you, O holy God. Would you please be merciful to us, Lord? And would you just um, create revival in your church? 
and renewal of hearts and minds and an awakening, a spiritual awakening in the United States of America that would spread around the globe. We ask this in Jesus' name.